Hello and welcome to the Arate podcast. My name is Richard Triggs and today's guest is Ray Weeks, former CEO of Castlemaine Perkins and currently CEO in residence with the Business School at the Queensland University of Technology and Chairman of the CEO Institute, Queensland. Well, I hope wherever you're listening to this podcast, you're having a fantastic day and your life is filled with interesting and exciting challenges and opportunities professionally so that your 2016 will end up being a fantastic year. Today's guest, Ray Weeks, is one that I've been really excited about getting on the podcast. I've known Ray for a long time, and he's a fascinating guy with a fascinating story, and I think you'll really enjoy it. But before we get to that, for those people who are not familiar with me, my name is Richard Triggs. I'm the managing partner of Arate Executive. We're a Brisbane-based executive recruitment company that recruits CEOs, senior leaders, and non-executive directors for our clients across Australia. I certainly welcome an opportunity to have a chat to you about any recruitment requirements that you may have in your organisation. I'd also really appreciate it if you could reach out to me via LinkedIn if we're not already connected and send me a connection request so I in turn can invite you to participate in our LinkedIn group, the CEO Incubator, which is a fantastic forum for networking with your peers across industry and something that I hope that you will get a lot of value from. Anyway, let's get on with the podcast now and let me introduce to you Ray Weeks. Ray Weeks is the former CEO of Rothmans New Zealand and managing director of the globally recognized Castlemaine Perkins Limited. He is currently chairman of the CEO Institute in Queensland and a director and advisor to various organizations. He is a CEO in residence and adjunct professor in the business school at the Queensland University of Technology and is a doctor of the university. Ray is also a member of the Queensland Business Leaders Hall of Fame Governing Committee. Sit back and enjoy this conversation with Ray Weeks. All right, Ray. Well, thanks very much for joining us on the Arate podcast. It's excellent to have you along here. Um, I think really for the benefit of our audience who's listening in, perhaps can you just start by having a chat about your current range of responsibilities? Certainly. My current range of responsibilities uh, cover Chairman of the CEO Institute in Queensland, Mm -hmm. also cover uh, uh, my chairmanship of uh, different uh, other organisations. I'm also on the governing committee for the Queensland Business Leaders Hall of Fame. Okay. I'm a CEO in residence for the QUT Business School and have a number of uh, corporate advisory roles as well as a couple of directorships. So it's a it's a mixed, and also I should mention I'm chairman of the QUT Learning Potential Fund, okay. which provides scholarships and bursaries for low-income students. Fantastic. There's a range of current responsibilities. Sure, and uh, obviously quite a number of those uh, put you right out in the uh, spotlight in terms of your own personal profile. So I imagine uh, it must be quite an honour to have been given those opportunities. Well, it is, particularly because it's a it's a mix of responsibilities. It's a mix of activities that uh, I really enjoy. It gives me the flexibility I need, but at the same time, it's involved with commercial developments mm-hmm. as well as uh, academic areas of academia as well as areas of um, uh, senior business responsibilities, but Mm -hmm. also community responsibilities. Mm -hmm. So I'm putting back into the community as well as maintaining the right kind of involvement in uh, the commercial sector. Mm -hmm. Well, I I know a lot of the people who are listening to this podcast will be thinking, well, how was Ray able to manage his career to end up where he is here today? So perhaps let's go right back to the beginning where it all began and talk to us a little bit about where you were born and, you know, what your mum and dad did and your brothers and sisters and early life, etc. No, very happy to do it. I was born in Bondi in Sydney, so I spent my childhood in Sydney. Parents separated when I was three years of age and I have a sister who's two years younger than me. So I was in boarding school actually at the age of four, which is an interesting interesting start in life because uh, I was told I was five. In fact, I was four. Right. So I went to boarding school, no issues. I, I really enjoyed the experience if I look back on it. 
My father worked for John Fairfax Media mm-hmm. uh, for 26 years. He was circulation manager, advertising manager, uh, mayor of Waverley. He was also captain of the North Bondi Surf Life Saving Club. And my grandfather actually founded the first surf life saving club in Australia, which wow. is the North Bondi Surf Life Saving Club. My mother was a senior executive in Petersville at a time when women were not expected to be senior executives. Mm-hmm. So she was a real inspiration to me. And uh, schooling was at Canterbury Boys High, mm-hmm. which is the same, uh, it was a selective state school, the same state school that uh, John Howard went to, but a number of years before me. Right. I did spend, I should say, I did spend some time in boarding school and primary school. Um, and at the age of eight, I was told I was seven. Right. So it was an interesting experience, but uh, state primary schools. And I had many jobs whilst I was at school. I had odd jobs and office work, uh, post office work. I married at the age of 22. Okay. And I've been married now for uh, 40, uh, 45 years. Okay. Well, right before we, let's not race ahead. I yeah, guess, sure. I'm, I'm interested. Sure. So um, when you grew up uh, and you were saying your parents separated when you were three, um, uh, but your father was, you know, obviously a very uh, strong business person himself. Um, True. Uh, what was the sort of atmosphere like in the family in terms of uh, your inclusion in discussions about business and, and how that potentially developed your aspirations at such an early age? Well, the only real discussions I had about the business and why I was suddenly quite interested in mm-hmm. a business career came through my mother. Okay. Never came out of my father. I mean, my father was a, not a risk taker right. in a number of ways. And yeah. His approach was join the public service, they can't sack you. Okay. That attitude, that right. attitude which I um, immediately rejected. But it was my mother who was the inspiration, right. gave me an understanding of a business career mm-hmm. and the opportunities that it could throw up. Okay. And so what were some of her key messages uh, around that that you remember? Messages I remember are that uh, a commercial life is a life where a number of opportunities open up mm-hmm. to you. Uh, she was never interested in sort of developing my thinking. Mm-hmm in any other field. Okay. Uh, she really regarded the business life as being a way that you could generate the right kind of independence, mm-hmm. uh, the right kind of capacity for financial independence, mm-hmm. as well as uh, maintaining a, an independent spirit within, okay. within a commercial framework. So she took a very active lead in introducing you to education around business. She, I have put in place mm-hmm. a scholarship uh, for the Learning Potential Fund. And I've mm-hmm. named it after my mother. Mm-hmm. It's a five-year scholarship which provides scholarships for low-income students. Mm-hmm. And I've done that because of her belief in education. Right. It was her fervent belief in what mm-hmm. education could deliver that inspired me. Okay. And she gave me through... We were financially disadvantaged ourselves. Mm-hmm. I mean, we lived in public housing, mm-hmm. single-parent family. Sure. And uh, so we, were, we never felt deprived, but there was a, an area of, uh, of really not, not being that well off. Okay. So we understood the power of education through right. her. So was Dad around for you? No, Dad was totally absent. Right, okay. Yeah, so Dad, Dad was removed. Okay. Uh, and it was that, that sense of uh, him not being really part of my thinking mm-hmm. about the decisions I was taking in life, mm-hmm. whereas my mother was right there front and center. Okay. And you mentioned uh, when you were at high school, you had a range of uh, different kinds of jobs. Were they largely in the businesses that your mum was involved in? or they were, they were. There were a couple of jobs I had working yeah. in the office where okay. she worked, but mainly so odd jobs outside sure. of the office. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So finished high school. Finished high school. And uh, university or Australian? Went straight to the University of New South Wales. Okay. Just walked out of high school straight into the university there and uh, did a Bachelor of Commerce degree specialising in accounting. Mm -hmm. Finished the Commerce degree, walked, had no idea what I was going to do with it. Mm -hmm. None at all. And walked into a public accounting office and they immediately hired me. Right. Which was uh, Pete Marwick Mitchell at the time, which is today KPMG. Yeah. And that was probably the best thing I could ever have done mm-hmm. because I got I got the uh, Institute of Chartered Accountants qualification, so mm-hmm. I'm a chartered accountant. I f- understood the the fin- financial literacy is mm-hmm. a key element in a successful commercial career. Mm-hmm. You can't be a good CEO unless you've got some level of financial literacy. Mm-hmm. I mean, finance is the language of business. Mm-hmm. So I was lucky enough to make a decision of going through 
a public accounting office, getting the qualifications and getting the grounding. Mm -hmm. I understood pretty quickly that it was not my career. I didn't want to go through that career of uh, in public accounting. I'll just quickly explain that. Sure. I was, after four years in the Sydney office, I said I wanted to go overseas. So I worked in, after eight months, traveling around Europe in a Volkswagen van, as we all seem to have with done. With your wife? With my wife. Yeah. Uh, the two of us driving around, uh, and then we decided to uh, settle down in Canada. Mm-hmm. We settled down in Montreal, where I was okay. a management consultant, did some audit as well uh-huh. for the Kate's Peak Malik operation there. And then after four years, decided to come back to Australia. They told me that the position was still open, mm-hmm. Pete Marwick in Sydney. And I, uh, we spent eight months mm-hmm. uh, backpacking through Turkey, Iran, Afghanistan, Pakistan, India, and so on. That backpacking experience was uh, probably one of the best experiences I could have had at that time. Mm. And I imagine a lot of the places you've mentioned then were probably not typical in tourist destinations. Exactly. There were certain risks attached but also the, the places you can't get in now, mm-hmm. no number of those places. So it was very, very special. Came back in as the youngest manager at Pete's, uh, KPMG effectively, and understood very quickly that I was not doing something I wanted to be doing. Mm-hmm. There was an ethical issue that was raised, which really defined me a little. And I'd like, I could talk about that, but sure. it defined me in a sense that I found I was dealing with an ethical issue that, uh, gave me the understanding that, again, I didn't want to continue in that role. Right, okay. It was, uh, again, a defining moment. It it gave me an understanding of the values that I do hold sacred Mm -hmm. and do have maintained because I've been confronted with a number of offers where there'd be such easy rationalizations, such Mm -hmm. easy compromises. But I, I have avoided those mm-hmm. throughout my, my career. Mm. So without necessarily getting into the detail, were, were you were being asked to, something that you just, uh, to do something you just didn't feel comfortable Well, I discovered a fraud okay. that I didn't believe was being revealed okay. effectively. Right. And I thought though, if a company is not prepared to open up mm-hmm. uh, publicly, uh, effectively, in a public arena, mm. then it's not an organisation that I want to be part of. Mm. And so how quickly after that discovery did you move on? Well, the beauty is it was this was a turning point for me, okay. a real pivotal point, because when I resigned, I took a year off. Okay. I became a consultant. Mm-hmm. At the same time, I decided to uh, understand what career choices I really wanted to consider. Mm-hmm. I did a postgraduate diploma in education. This is after I'd done a postgraduate degree in business administration. Okay. But that, I did a, that diploma at Sydney University, mm-hmm. and I was considering a legal career okay. at that point, and I was very close to moving in that direction. I then applied for a lecturer role. I was, I was only 29. Uh-huh. Lecturer role at um, University of Technology in Sydney, mm-hmm. and to my surprise, against 100 applicants, I got the role. Right. So I had a choice here, I had a few choices, uh, but I was offered then a, a role with uh, Tooth & Company. Mm-hmm. At the time, Tooth was the largest brewery operation property holder in Australia. Okay. And I walked into that role bec- and it was probably the best decision I could have taken. So you had a choice of go to the law, mm. become an academic, mm. or go into commerce again. Yeah, exactly. Right. And, wow. the, and the beauty of it is that by selecting my the commercial career, mm-hmm. it became the right kind of uh, opportunity for me for the future. Right. And what do you think in terms of making that decision was the, the critical thing that uh, uh, you ended up going down that path? Well, what it enabled me to do was to move into a CEO role. Right. I, when I took on the, the role uh, with Tooth & Company, I became Director of Corporate Planning and Development. Okay. And I was involved with acquisitions of companies. So I got a very senior mm-hmm. understanding mm-hmm. of uh, buying and selling companies. Mm-hmm. So that gave me a, a grounding, which really right. helped me. So do you think, uh, just to stand that point for a moment, the, the decision to go down that path versus law or academia was because you recognised in yourself at that time you wanted to be a CEO? I recognised, not necessarily wanted to be a CEO, I recognised that I was more suited okay. to a commercial career. Right. Again, it comes out of some of the, mm. some of the views that uh, I took out of my mother's experience sure. and so on. I, I could see a life that was going to be fulfilling. Mm-hmm. So I moved in that direction and uh, 
a pivotal point for me was when I purchased a company, when I, I joined Rothmans, mm-hmm. and I purchased a company in New Zealand. So this is post-Tooth. Post-Tooth. I moved yeah. from Tooth into a, a senior, um, I was head of corporate planning development for Sibagagi, pharmaceutical company, and then I moved into, I was headhunted mm-hmm. into Rothmans. Okay. And at, in Rothmans, I moved through the ranks, mm-hmm. and my, one of the roles I had was to purchase a company in New Zealand, settle on it, and then I said to the CEO at the time I was reporting to, I said, you're looking for a CEO, mm. don't give it to anyone else. Right. Give it to me. Okay. Uh, so he surprised me by agreeing to what I said. Right. And what sort of age were you by this time? 39. Right, okay. So I took my first CEO role then, and that was a turning point for me. Right. I had no idea what a leadership role entailed. Mm-hmm. I learned on the job, mm. but I also believed that I was probably as good as the next person. Mm. And so what do you think it was that you recognized within yourself to have, you know, the the self-assurance to be able to go and essentially demand, give me the gig? I believe that uh, I had some commercial capacities. I had a, an understanding of, uh, early understanding of what mm-hmm. leadership entailed. Mm-hmm. I did have a sense of I've dealt with a number of general managers, I've dealt with a number of CEOs, so I had a range of experiences where I thought leadership had worked and hadn't worked. Mm -hmm. So I could see there were certain characteristics. I had a certain Mm self-confidence. It was probably excessive at the time. (laughs) I was probably a little too cocky and uh, probably overconfident. I probably had at that stage a a level of self-awareness that needed to be further developed. Okay. I, I think I'm much stronger in an emotional intelligence sense today than I was then. Sure. So I think there was a range of probably areas of understanding I needed to have. Okay, that's interesting. And so 39 you step into this CEO role for yes. the first time. Yep. In that early stage of being a CEO, what were some of the gaps that you recognized within yourself that you needed to get fixed? What I recognized was that I needed to have a much uh, stronger view of how I could get people to trust a direction that I wanted to take the company in. I knew that there was a certain way of communicating Mm -hmm. a vision, a direction for the company that uh, I needed to work on. Mm -hmm. I needed to get that buy-in. I knew I, I could see that I needed to develop a sense of ownership mm. in so was there an incident where you went gee i haven't got the ownership here that i was hoping for that means i've got something to do in terms of my own style yeah there was a certain incident incident uh, where i found one of my direct reports demonstrating a lack of support for uh, a decision that i was i was moving towards okay. but doing it in an aggressive way in front of the other members of the team right so I knew at that stage that there was a different way of engaging a team, mm-hmm. different way of getting individuals to understand if there is something that they need to really put on the table. Mm. It can be done with a team that's open, mm-hmm. uh, that's functioning effectively, but at the same time know that there's a certain level of trust and respect mm-hmm. that's needed. So I didn't fully appreciate how to get that engagement okay. at that point. Right. And so did somebody mentor you or train you in that skill or you kind of just came across it on your own? Came across it on my own. I think one of the mistakes I made, and I do really think about this now, I didn't take on a mentor. Mm-hmm. I really didn't. I had just had probably too much confidence in my mm-hmm. own capacities at that point. I probably didn't have uh, the level of wisdom mm. that, that you did need mm-hmm. at that point in your leadership. I, I think I developed some of that, mm. hopefully, and I've developed through some wise counseling, mm-hmm. but not necessarily mentoring. It was never a feature of my CEO life. I didn't see, I saw, I had a relationship with the chairman yeah. of Rothmans, for instance. It was a good relationship, but it was never an effective mentoring mm. role. But I mean, for example, career coaching is only a fairly recent thing. Mm. Uh, yeah. um, mentoring, probably much the same. I mean, at that time mm. in business in general, was mentoring even something that was talked about? Well, it wasn't. Right. It wasn't at all. But mm. I, sh- I should have understood that there were certain individuals that would protect me from myself. Yeah, right. It would get me to understand what sure. I needed to uh, to really think about uh, and the way I dealt with people mm-hmm. at that point. So if you were um, now going back and mentoring 
you know, Ray at 39 stepping into a CEO role, other than uh, the way to communicate and get people engaged and taking ownership, what are some of the other lessons or, or things that you would talk to yourself about back then? What I would say to me at 39, if I was mentoring me at that age, mm-hmm. would be have some reflection. Mm-hmm. Have, have some time out for reflection. Okay. Be a little more mindful. Mm-hmm. Be more present mm-hmm. in your discussions. Be less active. Free up some time where you do get that, that time for reflection. Don't regard yourself as bulletproof. Mm. Understand that there's a lot, there's a, a level of confidence you need, but you've got to also have a well-based confidence mm-hmm. and a well-based optimism. Mm-hmm. Now, I was, I could see myself as being far too optimistic. I had it. There was a. Um, I always regard optimism as a force multiplier. Mm-hmm. And I've always maintained a level of optimism, mm. but you've got to be careful because at times I was too optimistic. I hadn't thought through the issues. Mm-hmm. So I would say to myself at that age, get away from some of the self-denial right. that you're dealing with yeah. to, to get you through mm. certain situations mm. and be more, uh, confront the issues early enough. Mm. So do you think that one of the things was perhaps you were too ambitious? Uh, you were wanting to charge ahead to bigger and better things um, no. Uh, in a hurry? No. Okay. I was never, I can't regard myself as, as being driven. Right. I took opportunities as they came up. Mm-hmm. I, I really embraced opportunities when mm-hmm. I saw something I could do, I thought I could do. Mm-hmm. Probably not well-based understanding at that point, but right. that was the first CEO role and so on. But I never took a view that um, that I should step away from something like that. Mm-hmm. Give me the question again. I'm well, I, I, you were saying that uh, you know you needed time for reflection and, mm. and consideration. Mm. Sometimes people are so ambitious, mm. they are constantly thinking, what's next, what's next, yeah. um, and not paying attention to what's actually happening yeah. now. Look, I, to say it again, Richard, I was not ambitious. Mm. I never felt about the roles that I've been in that if I lost them, mm. I would be devastated. Mm. I've never felt... I've never, some people might disagree with this, but mm. I've never felt my identity, my personal identity was mm-hmm. tied up in the role. Mm-hmm. I felt that I could always move on. Mm. I mean, there were certain points in one of my CEO roles where I knew the decisions I was taking and rejecting the views of someone or my predecessor mm. who was still trying to play an operational role, which I felt was totally unacceptable. But I knew that I had two choices here. I could preserve my role and support his views, or I could um, I could simply reject his views because that's what I thought was in the mm-hmm. interest of the company, mm-hmm. and then probably put my role at risk. Mm-hmm. I would rather do the latter mm-hmm. for the in the interest of the company. And I'm the same way about personal loyalties in yeah. organisation. It's the organisation that matters, the company that matters, the people in it that matter, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. the company that matters finally mm-hmm. as a CEO. And so you can't allow personal loyalties to get in the way of what you think is right for the company. Loyalties to people within the team yes. who might be in roles and they're not performing. Correct. Right. Correct. Yet, yet I would always try and retain mm-hmm. people that I believed mm-hmm. uh, were right for the company. Mm. And uh, But but you've got to be careful about allowing personal loyalties to override mm. your thinking about what's right for the company. Mm. That's interesting. One of the things I'm interested in is this uh, comment you know, you never felt uh, that your identity was attached to the role and mm. if the job wasn't there, mm. you know, um, say the bee. Um, do you, I mean, that time that you've spent in your early life traveling and particularly mm. in some of the areas that you traveled to obviously gave you some awareness and some, um, for want of a better term, some spiritual development, uh, mm. which a lot of people mm. of, you know, your generation would never have experienced. Exactly. Do you think that part of that led you to this kind of attitude that you have? I think, well, I think it's, that's, that's very perceptive because mm. I, I never allowed the role to override the way I regarded myself. Mm-hmm. I always kept it in perspective. And I think the re- one of the reasons for that is because of the extensive traveling and because I'm pretty curious, mm-hmm. I'm very inquisitive. Mm. I like exploring ideas. Right. And I, I like 
traveling. I like adventure travel where I can. I like uh, testing myself where I can. But also, I've got a range of other areas of interest. Sure. And that, I, I just want to keep things, and also the family is an important element mm-hmm. for me. I want to keep things uh, in balance. Yeah. It's really interesting uh, that you say that because uh, I had Kerry O'Brien mm. on and I said to him, what do you think is one of the key things in relation to great leadership and the word he used was curiosity mm-hmm. so uh, it's fascinating that mm-hmm. you know the way these things are sort of tying together so yes. let's get back to okay so you're at Rothmans okay. uh, you were in that role obviously for a while yep. uh, based um, in New Zealand mm-hmm. uh-huh. and where did things go from there I was then uh, after four years in New Zealand as CEO of the company there I was then asked to come back to take on the CEO role mm-hmm. for the group. Okay. So this is one of the, at that time, one of the top 20 listed companies, public companies in Australia. Mm-hmm. I was asked to be CEO mm-hmm. um, or managing director and um, executive director of Rothman's uh, Holdings Limited. And what sort of time, when is this? Uh... That was in 1990. Right. So I've had four years in New Zealand. Yeah. So it was a company that had about um, we had five thousand people mm-hmm. in the company. We had uh, it was a revenue of billions of dollars. Mm. It was a major organisation. We had companies, organisations in Australia, New Zealand, uh, South Pacific, uh, New Guinea, Indonesia, Philippines. Mm-hmm. So it was a an extensive operation. Sure. Five thousand people. So I was really then uh, appointed the uh, managing director. Mm. And I suppose working in an industry which was under increasing threat, you know, the tobacco industry mm. and the sort of change in public perception around smoking mm. and so on, mm. would have added a, a very interesting and challenging dimension well, to the role. Well, it did, it did. And it was a, it's a tough role. Mm. But I've been, all my life, I've been in, with controversial mm-hmm. products, beer, drugs, cigarettes, mm. and beer. <laughs> So it's been an interesting career in that sense, but the dealing with controversial products where there's a lot of uh, government pressure, there's a lot of uh, some public pressure. But don't forget, at the time I was managing director of Rothmans, it was still a mainstream product. Sure, yeah. I mean, there were a lot of there were concerns about the health consequences and so mm-hmm. on. Clearly, but it was still an adult decision, mm. and also we had the right to market the product, uh, sponsor sports events, and so on. But it was these increased pressures that you're talking about, which finally decided for me that I was spending far too much of my time mm. defending the right mm-hmm. to market this product, sure. yeah. defending the right to sell this product. And at that point, uh, I, I could see that I just uh, wanted to move on. Mm-hmm. So that's when I moved on to Castleman Perkins. Okay. I was offered the role as CEO. And that was your move to Brisbane? And that's why I moved to Brisbane yeah. to get that uh, CEO role. So I was, I've had been 22 years now in Brisbane, one of the right. best decisions I could have ever made. Sure. And it's, uh, it's been, it's been a, a great ride. Okay. So five years with Castleman Perkins mm-hmm. as head of Forex. See, at that stage, we had uh, 700 employees. It was a self-contained operation. Mm-hmm. I was responsible for all functional aspects, mm-hmm. operations, marketing, sales, HR, everything. But towards the end of the fourth year, there was this progressive centralization. Okay. Back to Sydney. Right. Or to Sydney. To the parent company. To the parent company in yeah. Sydney, which meant that all the operations, TUIs and all the other operations, mm-hmm. Swan Brewery in West mm-hmm. Australia, everything was being brought back into a centralized structure. Mm. I remember living in Brisbane around that time, uh, the huge uproar where I think the, the business was renamed and they dropped... Castle Main Perkins or that was under, that was under Alan Bond, right? And that was see. I came in two years after Alan Bond. Alan Bond had sold out. Okay, and so that ridiculous decision, right, of trying to nationalise the product, mm-hmm. take away the local identity of it. Now we had to pick up the pieces on some of that, mm. but it was a regional brand, and it was very important for Queensland. Oh, we understood that. Fural, I yeah, remember exactly. Uh, it was uh, almost uh, marching in the streets about. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> One thing I will say, but it was a, it was difficult. I was asked to stay on as managing director mm-hmm. of Castleman, but it was an operation that had really gone down to basically a sales operation. Yeah. So I didn't want to stay. They asked me to go back to Sydney. I didn't want to leave Brisbane. Mm-hmm. So that's the, the decision I took at that point was, do I want another full-time CEO role? Mm. And I decided no. Okay. I, I had 12 years as a CEO. I felt that was enough. Now, I'm still pretty young. Yeah. 
So I thought, no, portfolio career. And that's mm. when I moved into the various board roles, mm. uh, chairman of different listed public companies, uh, chairman of private companies, uh, not-for-profit organization, director of, mm-hmm. chairman of the Brisbane Institute. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, almost, um, yeah, chairman of arts organizations. Had you secured any uh, directorships prior to resigning as no. CEO role? No. So that was probably a pretty gutsy move. Well, Richard, the only directorships I've taken at that point were for arts organizations. Okay. Voluntary. Vol- voluntary organizations. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to move at that stage into a, a paid board sure. role. Yeah. So I, I moved into the Queensland Ballet Company. Mm-hmm. And I was uh, I was a director of Brisbane Tourism at that time mm-hmm. and so on. So there's okay. a range of organizations like that. And so uh, I imagine <laughs> making that decision to relinquish what was no doubt quite a good salary and a pretty comfortable lifestyle without any assurance of uh, being able to replicate or even get income from a board career must have been a you know a decision that you uh, thought long and hard about. I didn't. Okay. For the reason that I was at that point um, financially independent. Mm-hmm. So at that point, I didn't have to make any decision about my career, my mm-hmm. life, mm-hmm. on financial grounds. Okay. I can make every decision mm-hmm. on what I believed in what I believed I want to be doing. Mm. So a lot of decisions I took were really about, do I want to work with these people? Okay. Do I want to go in as director and work with this management team and with this board? So I wanted flexibility in my life. Mm-hmm. At that point, I didn't want anyone making choices for me. Mm-hmm. I wanted to make my own choices and get a mix of activities, boards and so on, mm-hmm. which would uh, interest me. Sure. And enable me still to explore all the other areas of interest that I have, mm-hmm. including travel and so on. So it was about flexibility and choice. Mm-hmm. So before we get to what's been happening more recently, in terms of the evolution of your board career, what would you say are some of the key milestones or all moments in that period that have enabled you to now be, you know, uh, the um, involved in QT and the Queensland Business Leaders Hall of Fame and so on? Um, because it takes a while to build a reputation to create those opportunities, doesn't it? Well, look, the lucky th- thing I had was if you're head of a brewery, you tend to be reasonably well-networked. Sure, yeah. People tend to want to know heads of breweries. <laughs> <laughs> so when I, when I did come out and, it was, and I made it clear that I was looking for some, a portfolio career, mm. I was approached by QUT, okay. the uh, vice chancellor at the time and mm. the executive dean of the business school. And they said, join us part-time. Right. Support us in getting closer to the business community, okay. which is what I did. So I joined them on the base. I would do two days a week. Yeah. Then I I joined a, uh, and it was very much about just having some reputation, mm. uh, which people knew about. But look, the role gave me a profile, mm-hmm. and people responded to that. Sure. So when they knew I was looking around, they tend I tended to be offered things mm-hmm. that I had to think carefully of. I'd say to every person who comes out of a full-time role, say no to the first three things you're offered. Right. Because you tend to make the wrong decisions if you make them too early. It's interesting because I've interviewed people exiting CEO roles mm-hmm. about what they're going to do next, and they've said to me, well, I've had this conversation with Ray, and he said, refuse the first three things. So why, I mean, I've not heard that before. Why, mm-hmm. why do you think that that's so important? Because you need to clear your head. Right. So there needs to be some clear space. Mm-hmm. You are you're carrying some baggage from the previous role, yeah, which does have some bearing, emotional baggage, mm-hmm. and it does have some bearing on your thinking at that point. You need to expand your capacity to think of, of the range of opportunities mm-hmm. that are available to you. Mm-hmm. Too often we make decisions early after leaving a CEO role yeah. because we're not active enough. Right. So people uh, panic and yeah. they jump at things which yeah. in a normal circumstance they wouldn't touch. Exactly. Right. I found that you would uh, be rebelling against the phone calls that you weren't getting, mm-hmm. the, uh, the messages that weren't mm-hmm. coming through, the lack of engagement with team members that you trusted and respected. Mm-hmm. So all these elements fed into a feeling of being uh, not lost, but a feeling of uh, a touch of isolation. Undervalued. A little undervalued. Yeah. And there is a validation issue here sure. that uh, we all go through. Uh, we need to, we've been recognized in the roles we've been in, been in the CEO roles, and suddenly there's a, a lower level of recognition. Mm-hmm. Uh, so each of us deal with that in different ways. But what you've got to do is, don't 
make decisions too early simply to be active because mm. you'll make the wrong decisions. Mm-hmm. But I think there were some, just to talk about maybe some of the mistakes. Do, okay. do you want to go through sure. that? No, that would be great. I've mentioned not taking on a mentor, mm-hmm. and I have uh, mentioned that at times I've, when I've been looking at board roles, I've not conducted the right level of due diligence. Right. And I've taken a board role for reasons of, uh, of early confidence in the management team or whatever, mm-hmm. without really knowing the people. Mm-hmm. So I've, I've taken on a couple that I felt later that wouldn't have, uh, wouldn't have been in my interest. Mm. I think I've, I've done some of the mistakes I've made in the past of doing too many things. Mm. Just before we go on, mm. though, um, what do you think you would have discovered in a more robust due diligence process would, that would have enabled you have been able to circumvent those sort of decisions that you made? Well, I would have understood more the standing of the organisation. Right. Uh, the market, uh, the market strength. Okay. Of the organisation, I would have understood more the true capacity of the uh, senior executive team. So what would be some of the questions that you'd now ask uh, to elicit the kind of information that would make you satisfied? I'd be asking questions about the financial structure, getting okay. much more de- deep, much more detailed and mm-hmm. deep understanding of the financial structure. Mm-hmm. I would understand the uh, capacity to self-fund mm-hmm. the operation mm-hmm. better. I would also understand that the company does not need to go to a capital raising too early. Now, at times, I haven't fully understood the, the runway yeah. and the cash available to mm-hmm. invest in that runway. Okay. So yeah. I would ask questions about that. Mm-hmm. I'd also ask questions about the board, uh, the uh, individual members of the board, mm-hmm. and ask uh, and be much more aware of the level of understanding they had of corporate governance. Mm-hmm. At times, I've moved into boards where I found suddenly a skill level I didn't anticipate, mm. in, particularly in terms of uh, the, con- the conformance aspect mm-hmm. and not really uh, truly understanding how a board should work. Mm. And I suppose uh, in your role with CEO Institute, which I'd like to talk about in uh, more detail in a moment, mm-hmm. you're constantly mentoring and counselling mm-hmm. uh, organisations looking to bring people onto their board mm-hmm. and people looking for board opportunities would you say that in general it's done um, well or poorly? Um, I mean, you've raised it with some mistakes you've made in your own career, but when you look out there at the broader community, I mean, my opinion would be very few people do the kind of due diligence that you're talking about. I think that is the case. And I find that it is a much more professional approach today than it was, say, 15 or 10, 20 years ago. Mm. I think we still have, who do you know, mm-hmm. with board appointments. I, th- I still think it's a lot of, uh, will I feel confident in this person because I trust you? Mm. Can you give me some other... Without really going into the right kind of professional assessment of an individual mm. and whether the, it's the right, it's the right uh, body of skills to then mix in with the other composition of the board. So I think, it, I think it's a... Uh, it's a much more professional approach taken today, but still we have the remnants of who do you know yep. and who do you feel comfortable with mm-hmm. and is he likely to rock the boat, mm-hmm. this kind of attitude. Mm. But I think uh, today you really can't get away from a certain level of understanding of a person's skill mm-hmm. that they really truly bring to the board. Okay. So that's one uh, mistake or one learning that you've developed. Yep. Um, well, what are some of the other... Uh, key learnings that you've uh, uh, acquired over the time? Well, it is to not be too optimistic, as I was saying before. Get a role-based optimism. Also, be present. Also, be a better listener. Mm -hmm. And also be... I'm I'm much better now at understanding the questions, Mm. the silence that that leaders need. Mm. You should, at times, shut your mouth Mm. and allow that silence to generate a much stronger exchange, a much mm-hmm. stronger interaction. Mm. It's remarkable how if you don't talk and you allow the other person to talk, but on the basis of a good question, mm. a question that will elicit mm. some understandings, how much more effective that exchange is, mm. that conversation is. So I think that's been a key learning for me. I think there's two levels to that. Uh, one is this idea of you've got two ears and one mouth, so listen twice as much as you speak, mm-hmm. which is a sort of a... 
you know, almost a cliche, it's uh, spoken about so often. But I think one of the other things I learned early in my career is that people really feel uncomfortable in silence. Mm. So if you're prepared to hold the space of silence and um, and not, you know, talk immediately because you need to fill the air, mm. it's amazing what people start to talk about, isn't it? It is. Yeah. It is it's remarkable. It's mm. right. Uh, I totally agree with that. Yeah. And I think you've expressed that very, very well. Mm. And I wanted to ask a question around this idea of being too optimistic, mm. um, recognising that you can be too optimistic. What's a tool that you use to temper that? To be confronted, to be open, to being confronted about the realities I'm dealing with, mm-hmm. to ask the right questions mm-hmm. of individuals who will present you with the facts, right. not give you details that uh, they think you need, mm-hmm. Or they think that details that they think uh, will uh, not get you off track. Mm-hmm. Be surrounded by people that you know will confront you with the realities. Yeah, and that's when you have to confront your own optimism. And too often I've said I've remained optimistic mm. in the face of certain realities. Mm. So, do you think you're self-aware of it enough to you get into a conversation about an opportunity, you, you get excited that you go right? I'm getting too excited here. Mm-hmm. I need to deliberately look for what's wrong. Yeah, you need to step back. Right. Step back and take a um, mm. basically a helicopter view of it, mm-hmm. but at the same time ask the two or three questions mm. that you know will at least give you mm. an underpinning for the decision about to be made. Mm. So. Yeah, so that's that's the that's the approach I think you have to take. Get, mm. get those well-timed questions, well-constructed questions. Right. Now, from a uh, recruitment point of view, uh, people walk in for an interview and you immediately form an opinion about them. Oh, I really like this guy, mm. or I don't mm. like this guy. And uh, and one of the tools I've learned is that if I really like somebody, I have to put a plus on the top of my page. And for the first thirty minutes of the interview, intentionally look for evidence as to why I don't like them. Or vice versa. Mm-hmm. It's almost you're forcing yourself out of your, you know, your That's go-to good. position. That's good. That's good. Um, and it sounds like you maybe not using that exact same tool, but uh, but that's the uh, approach. Yeah, that's the approach. You're positioning right. yourself uh, in a way that you know you're going to at least bring out mm. some of the unexpected mm. understandings. Mm-hmm. I'd like to just talk for a, you. You asked me before about how to main, how I maintain focus. Yeah. And uh, how I dri- did drive motivation. Mm-hmm. I think it does come out of this optimism okay. question. Yeah. And I think what I've found in my life is it's important to have change. Mm-hmm. I've always avoided routine. Mm. Uh, with CEO roles, you tend to move at, at a certain point into a, a high level of uh, routine. Mm-hmm. So that, for me, is anathema. Mm. I've just got to move away from anything where routine is, uh, is, is part of the scene. I think to, for, to maintain focus too, it's working with good people. Mm. I've always sought out the best people, people mm. that are better than me. Mm. My best advice I ever got was surround yourself with the right people, mm-hmm. uh, seek the best advice you can from them, and let them get on with it. Mm. And so I've always believed that uh, surround yourself with those people who are better than you and who can stretch you to even greater heights. Mm. So I've never been too concerned about anyone taking my role. If that happens, so be it. Sure. But for me to maintain motivation, it's about continuously learning. Mm-hmm. It's about that curiosity mm-hmm. you and I spoke about. It's, I think it's also having, for me, the motivation comes out of understanding the values. Mm-hmm. I don't think I fully understood my values early enough. Mm-hmm. I did later. Mm-hmm. And that was very important that it gave a sense of, a strong sense of belief. So what, what do you think, I mean, people talk about values and, and values can be fairly generic, mm-hmm. you know, honesty and integrity mm-hmm. and uh, et cetera. Yep. What, what, what's some of the unique values of Ray Weeks, the things that set you apart from, you know, your uh, peers across industry? Well, I don't think this necessarily sets me apart. So just, just if I just explore the values that I do hold dear for a moment, mm-hmm. and it is honesty, mm-hmm. it is openness. Now, none of these are going to surprise you because most CEOs will sure. want to express this or people have been CEOs. Uh, it is trust, mm-hmm. it is, but it is communication. Mm-hmm. I'm a big believer in the right level of communication. It's inclusiveness. And it's courage. Mm. It's taking risks, ensuring you do take the well-calculated risks. Mm-hmm. But it's also authenticity. Mm. Apart from and it's, apart from being authentic and really, because authenticity makes people like you, trust you, 
uh, they're less guarded with you, they're more likely to follow you. So you've got to see the contours of the person you're dealing with. And that's why I've always tried to be uh, authentic mm. in that sense. But it's, it's that, uh, that, I think if I was, uh, if I could even see a level of distinctiveness, I think it's understanding too often we don't express our vulnerabilities. Mm. We don't show our vulnerabilities. Mm -hmm. I think I've been more successful in dealing with people when I've shown how emotionally connected I am mm -hmm. with the thinking, with the decision, mm. demonstrate that I'm, this is affecting me mm. and uh, the decisions we're taking here. Mm. So really opening up on that vulnerability. Mm. But you're not necessarily talking about being soft. It's, it's no. Um, no. And it, uh, so just explain that a little bit more because I think that that is quite something that uh, doesn't get talked about a lot. Uh, and is particularly uh, important for leaders? Well, I think you show your vulnerability when you tell a story. Okay. When you tell a story, a good leader is a good storyteller. Mm -hmm. And when you tell a story that, about the company, about what you fervently believe, mm. and doing that in a very uh, authentic, emotional way at times, mm. you drop the mask. You're less guarded. You, you show, in, your, in showing your vulnerability, you show your humanity. Mm -hmm. And in showing your humanity, people want to mm. want to follow you. They, and can you give an example of where this has happened and yeah, the results yeah. been um, really far more amazing than you had hoped for? Well, what, I give one example. When I was involved with a major, major change program mm -hmm. at um, Castlemaine Perkins, and we took out of the organisation about forty percent of the people, forty percent, four zero. Mm -hmm. It was a tough time. Mm. We made tough decisions. It was done in a way where there was not a lot of consultation because I didn't want this to be death by a thousand cuts. Mm -hmm. So I felt, I felt, uh, I was really struggling with some of the uh, decisions that we were taking because they were affecting so many people. Sure. And I remember, I, but I wanted to make sure everyone knew why we'd done it. Mm -hmm. and I wanted to hear their views. I wanted them to understand it's going to be a better future. Right, we can now effectively compete. We're not they are a viable organization with these changes. But I wanted them to be properly briefed. And it mm. was not going to be done by anyone else other than me, as CEO, because I was the one they saw as responsible for sure. these decisions. Yeah. So I remember once going to the brewery at midnight to talk to the night shift employees. And I spoke to them why we'd made this change program, why they'd lost a lot of their buddies, mm -hmm. uh, and why they should be confident about the future. And they should have this commitment of loyalty. And I said, any questions? And I didn't get a quote. There was silence. Mm. And I looked at them and I said, listen, I'm not leaving here. And you tell me why you feel, how you feel about this, what you believe about this. Mm. Uh, and so I'm, and you ask me questions about it. Whereas a lot of people would be grateful to not have to answer those questions yeah. and get out of there, wouldn't they? Well, I knew that they wanted, they had something that they really wanted to throw out. Mm -hmm. they, they wanted to really, they wanted to hit the person up who was, they saw as responsible mm -hmm. for the decisions that, be, that had been made, these tough decisions. So I said, I'm not leaving until you ask me the question. Mm -hmm. I stood there and I showed my vulnerability too. I showed that it was affecting me mm -hmm. personally mm -hmm. as I knew it was affecting them. Mm -hmm. And boy, did I unleash it. Right. Did I unleash it? All the hostility came out, all the questions came out. And I stood there for 20 minutes and answered every question. Mm. And I did it in a way where they could see it wasn't rhetorical, but it was real. Mm -hmm. They could see that this was something that was uh, unavoidable. Mm. There was an imperative here. So that gave them a... I don't think they necessarily trusted me more mm. at that point and my management team, mm. I don't think necessarily fully supported the decisions. But they felt but, uh, but they, fully hurt. But they felt uh, a bit more confident right. about their futures, mm -hmm. but they also believed that I was honest enough to give them the opportunity to um, be heard. Right. And so we, we explored that fairly vulnerable positions of each of us. Yeah, okay, that's interesting. I mean, I've known you now for, I guess, about seven years or so, mm -hmm. and uh, I've always found, uh, uh, you know, you are a very receptive and, and great listener in terms of listening to me and offering me some advice, but there's a couple of things, you know, that I particularly uh, 
respect about you and I'm interested in exploring. Um, uh, and it comes into this sort of area of values, I suppose. One of the things is, you know, particularly in your work with Queensland Business Leaders Hall of Fame, mm-hmm. you're very passionate about uh, recognising the stories of, you know, uh, great people and mm-hmm. making sure that those stories get out to an mm-hmm. audience. And I remember sitting down with you and you were talking about interviewing uh, people who have achieved amazing things and feeling almost an obligation to record that mm-hmm. for the benefit of humanity mm-hmm. uh, when these people, you know, leave, uh, die and, you know, those stories are lost. Mm-hmm. Talk a bit about that and, and why that's so important to you. What's so important is that we can't lose the memory mm-hmm. of business and what it's done for the state and for Australia. Mm. We have to we have to respect and store and recognise the business achievements. We have to recognise the individual achievements. Those people, those companies that have made major economic and social contributions to Queensland and mm. Australia. Those people who there are so many untold stories out there, mm. people who have uh, put us where we are today. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's remarkable that I can uh, relate so many different stories where we don't have enough understanding of the true impact that these people had. So we, we, have, to, we have to get that business memory stored. Mm-hmm. We have to make sure we, we store the stories and people can get access to these stories mm-hmm. so they will recognize those heroes, those heroines, those ones who made the major contribution to what we have today. Mm. And so what are the, some of the, uh, the initiatives that you're doing in order to get these stories recorded and available? I'm on the governing committee for the Queensland Business Leaders Hall of Fame. Mm-hmm. And in that role, we select six individuals and companies every year mm-hmm. to be, I interview each of them, mm. individual representatives. Uh, and we have historians who provide research briefs. Mm-hmm. So from that, we develop questions for the interviews. Those interviews are then stored in the State Library of Queensland. Mm-hmm. And also they're, of course, shown on the night of the annual sure. induction dinner yeah. to an audience of close to a 1,000 people. Mm-hmm. So there's a, there's a remarkable level of interest mm. in these stories of these, uh, these business mm-hmm. heroes. And so for people who are listening to this that want to get access, they would do that through the State Library? They would go to the State Library of Queensland and they would go onto the website there mm-hmm. and they would uh, have access to all the 56 people mm-hmm. and companies that right. we've inducted in the last seven years. Okay. Remarkable stories. Sure. Remarkable. So I think that that's fantastic. And I think the other side too is this idea of you didn't have mentoring when you were younger. Mm. Um, now a massive part of what you do and your reputation in the market is around you being a mentor. Mm. And you've been involved with the CEO Institute for a long mm. time. Mm. And uh, I know that you know you, that's not a financially driven motivation, mm. yeah. but what's kept you engaged and what do you love about that? Well, this is one of the best things I've done in my life. Being, mm. um, I chair two syndicate groups every month made up of about 16 to 18 senior CEOs of major organizations. Mm -hmm. And we meet monthly to explore issues that matter to them, to explore leadership and management development. We bring in speakers. This is a great opportunity for individual CEOs to explore issues that they don't feel confident exploring with others. Mm -hmm. So they can open up on those issues, strategic issues, Mm -hmm. initiatives, that they do want to test mm. the experience of others. Mm. So there's a lot of scar tissue around the table here, sure. which enables people to really tap into mm. knowledge and experience of CEOs. So the reason mm. I keep doing it, and I've been doing it now for over 18 years, is because I'm learning. Sure. Every time, every time each of us walk out of that CEO Institute session with some nuggets, mm-hmm. nuggets of gold, information that helps us in our CEO roles. I had a, an email this morning at 5 a.m. from one of the CEOs as a member of the group, and he thanked me mm. for what he'd gained in his in supporting his CEO role functioning. Mm-hmm. And it was heartfelt mm. that he was getting access to knowledge through the experiences of others, through peer-based learning, mm-hmm. that he would not get anywhere else. Mm. And so having done that for 18 years, mm. 
Uh, what are some of the general themes that you see? I mean, being a CEO is often regarded as being a pretty lonely job. Mm. You can't talk to your board necessarily mm. about everything. You can't talk to your team. Mm. You can't necessarily go home and talk to your husband or wife about mm. it. So um, people are bringing things into this mm. uh, forum. Mm. What, what, what are some of the things that you see come up regularly that CEOs um, have difficulty um, grappling with? What I see, uh, there's a range of initiatives that uh, a CEO, for instance, might be an acquisition, a mm-hmm. major acquisition, and they're about to present the acquisition to the board. Mm-hmm. And they want simply to tap into the knowledge around the table as to whether they've got a well-based, mm-hmm. the thinking for the acquisition. Well, that's just one example. Another could be uh, change management program where they're looking at a number of uh, strategic actions for a change management program and they want to see whether they're well-founded or not, mm-hmm. the thinking on that. But look, but at what you said before, it's remarkable that we don't at times fully appreciate the isolation mm-hmm. of the role mm-hmm. that we're in as a mm-hmm. CEO, mm-hmm. our inability to open up on issues that really matter to us. Mm-hmm. And what this does, the trust, the confidence, the respect around the table enables these individual CEOs to know there will not be a breach of confidence and Mm -hmm. there's never been a breach of confidence in any of the syndicate groups that I've chaired. Mm -hmm. You can open up in a very revealing way and really get the best possible understanding Mm -hmm. from those people around the table. Mm. And what about on a more personal uh, side of things? I mean, what you've mentioned there are both you know, very operational, tactical things. So what are some of the personal challenges that you see come up regularly? Well, what comes up is that there's a number of personal stories that come up, personal issues. Uh, it could be one of the CEOs saying, look, I'm about to make a decision as to whether I move away from the CEO role. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've got a one example. I'll give you an example the other day. One of the CEOs was uh, considering a role in Melbourne. Mm-hmm and wanted to better understand the, uh, the impact on his company as to whether he would keep his, fa- sorry, his family, would keep his family in Brisbane mm-hmm. and how he would go about managing that family relationship mm-hmm. before in six months' time he made a decision whether to stay in the CEO role or not. So each of us have had personal experiences sure. in yeah. dealing with family issues surrounding mm-hmm. that. So that's one example. Mm-hmm. There's a, a range of uh, personal issues that people want to put on the table because mm. of that trust mm. and respect. Sure. Yeah. Now, uh, moving uh, slightly segue because we're getting towards the tail end of this uh, conversation. One of the things that, I mean, this is a bit cheeky of me, uh, you talk about how you love change and, and you like to be innovative and yet you love the blues. You've been a blues man for a long time. And uh, I mean, really, you know, blues is all about maintaining tradition, isn't it? It is. It is, but look, you can't. I love history. Yeah. I love biography. I love. I love understanding what we're dealing with today through the past. Mm-hmm. I also love understanding uh, a music mm-hmm. that has such a remarkable history, and that's the blues, mm-hmm. because we have had some of the best exponents uh, in, in in music who have concentrated on playing the blues. Mm-hmm. The blues is laced with history. It's laced with the best possible music exponents. So for the blues for me is, is not just about tradition. It's about, it's about a method. It's about a, a form of music that is, uh, is heartfelt because it captures the spirit of the people. Mm. There's a soul to blues that you, re- you don't get with a lot of other music. Yeah. And you've been a, uh, a long-term uh, uh, guest of the Blues Fest down at Byron Bay. How I many have, years have yeah. you been going to that for? It's at least 14 years. Wow. I've been there every year. I can't escape it. As you know, Richard, I just, I just, I just love it. And we're both excited because the lineup for 2016 is looking pretty good, isn't it? It's brilliant. It's and so brilliant. What, what else, uh, um, when you're not working, uh, what are the kind of things that you like to get up to? Well, I do like to travel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do like I do a lot of travel. I do I do enjoy reading. Mm-hmm. I enjoy reading history and mm-hmm. biographies. I row. Okay. I enjoy rowing. In a in a an eight quad or four, skull four. quad skull. Right. It's, it's also a you know, four and a double yeah. double skull. Okay. I love rowing. Right. And I uh, also, but I also enjoy. I, I do gym work. I do. Uh, 
fucking fit. I yeah. think if I had to look at the things that really did matter, I think one of the things is uh, is apart from curiosity, which we discussed, mm-hmm. is I think one of the achievements I do lean on is keeping fit. Mm. Is it's not just the academic achievements, it's not just the honorary doctorate. But it's maintaining the curiosity, yeah. the inquisitiveness, mm-hmm. but it's keeping fit and making sure your physical and mental capacities mm-hmm. are still there, that you've got the uh, the energy and the passion to do what you, you want to do. So you circumnavigated your way through the tobacco and the alcohol industry <laughs> pretty right. well yeah. to, uh, to be in a situation where you're still in great health. Exactly. I didn't smoke. Right. I decided that I tried the product. I didn't like it. Yeah. I didn't smoke. You didn't have to smoke to be CEO of a tobacco company. Sure. Just as I didn't have to use Max Factor makeup to be mm-hmm. a, a member of the executive of the Max Factor organization. <laughs> right? So, look, if I had, to, if I look back, but uh, I think I look back on the, on the key achievements, mm-hmm. not just the CEO roles, mm-hmm. and not just the not just the academic achievements and so on, but it's it's the family stability. Mm-hmm. I think anyone, if they've been through CEO roles or senior commercial roles need to be able to look back at the end of their, towards the end of their careers and say, did, were you there for what mattered to your children? Mm-hmm. Were you there at the events that they wanted to be there? Mm. Did you, and I got to, I, I can say, and I, I feel proud of this, very proud of this and I do most things, that I got to all the events that mattered to my kids, mm. every one of them. Mm-hmm. I might not have been emotionally present sure. at times, yeah. but I was physically present. But I, and I think also that to be married for 46 years mm. is for me a great achievement. I mean, my father was married five times. So right. For me to be married 46 years and for my wife, Penny, to continue to believe in us, mm-hmm. I think that's my greatest achievement. Mm, that's fantastic. And so just before we wrap up, uh, is there anything else you'd like to just share with the audience or anything you're involved with yeah. that we haven't discussed that you'd like to just finish on? I would just like to finish on a couple of things. And I think... I was looking at things that did not go to plan. Mm-hmm. And I think for me, there was no plan. Mm-hmm. I didn't set goals. Mm-hmm. I, I put myself in the right place at the right time. I positioned myself for the right opportunities. But for me, life is not a series of planned events. Mm-hmm. It's being adaptable. It's also, I talk about the, ran, the randomness of life. Because mm. life for me has been quite random at times. Sure. And it's also, as uh, Steve Jobs once said, it's uh, you only connect the dots looking back, mm-hmm. not looking forward. Sure. And for me, it's, uh, it's just being prepared for the opportunities. But the main plan for me, from if I did have a plan from day one, was about having a stable home life, mm-hmm. having a good education, and providing a good education for my kids and providing a future. Mm. So I did, I did think about, just very quickly, I did think about what is, for me... The what matters to me today, mm-hmm. and it is to stay relevant and mm-hmm. valid on my own terms. It is to retain the choices mm-hmm. and the flexibility in my life. It is to give love and be loved by my family and friends. It's to stay intellectually fulfilled. It's to maintain that curiosity. It's to put something back and make a real contribution. And it's also to stay physically and emotionally healthy and to keep the energy levels up. Mm. So I think if, if I can do that sure. in this stage of my life, uh, I, will have, uh, I will have succeeded because I, I've had a great ride. And so looking across those spectrum of ideals, if you had to mark yourself out of 10, what would you say? Oh, look, I wouldn't mark myself more than seven. Right. I'd like to believe uh, there's a lot of areas where I... Uh, I could uh, be even more intellectually mm-hmm. involved. Mm-hmm. I could do even more for certain community mm-hmm. organisations. I mean, all of us know that uh, I don't, I'm not arrogant enough to believe I could go beyond a seven at this stage. Mm-hmm. I'd like to hope I could get beyond it. I'm not sure I can. I used to work for a guy and nothing for him was better than three out of ten. And, uh, I mean, it was quite demoralising as an employee. Uh, our boss uh, had that orientation. But I, I think 7 out of 10 is a pretty healthy space to be in. Always room for growth, but still going well. Exactly. Oh, but, but, awesome. I, but just to say, too, I think you asked about books that I read. Mm-hmm. And I think what, what is important for me is um, 
I would always look at the history books I've read, mm-hmm. the biographies, including fiction. Sure. But also I would look at uh, the books like the books like um, Good to Great okay. by Jim Collins. Yeah. That book for me has had a profound effect on mm-hmm. me in understanding that uh, we need to maintain a certain level of humility. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've gone through bouts, I think, of uh, early days at the level of hubris. Mm-hmm. I think uh, I understand much more now the humility that all of us need as leaders. Mm-hmm. We can be have this ferocious resolve, mm-hmm. as Jim Collins talks about in his research, but it's to maintain that level of humility. Mm. And it's an interesting point because uh, I'd say that everybody that I've interviewed so far for this podcast has being quite humble in terms mm. of their achievements. Mm. And it's interesting, you see people when they're rising through their career, perhaps lacking humility, but they're more aggressive, but by the time they get to a point where they're comfortable in their own skin, mm. that's when their true leadership excellence starts to shine, isn't it? It does, mm. it does. Well, Ray, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thanks very much. And uh, I, again, to be a little bit cheeky, normally I'd say if people are interested in learning a little bit more about you, Ray, they could have a look at your LinkedIn profile, <laughs> but uh, Ray's not a, a, a big fan of LinkedIn. This but, week, uh, this week. Right. So that may change, Richard. No worries. But look, uh, we'll put some links into uh, where Ray's biography is available elsewhere on the web. And uh, and certainly, uh, I'm sure people will have gotten a tremendous amount out of this conversation. Have a fantastic afternoon. No, thanks, Richard. Really enjoyed it. Thank you. I trust you enjoyed that conversation with Ray as much as I did. And I think that he's a guy that has really demonstrated that he has enabled his success to present him with a platform to be able to give back in terms of mentoring younger CEOs and senior executives coming through, as well as recognizing and showcasing the achievements of those who've walked the path before him. And certainly Ray Weeks is somebody that inspired me to start this podcast. He's been a tremendous friend and mentor to me and Arate Executive, and I've really enjoyed my opportunity to give back to him by giving him the opportunity to participate in this podcast. And I think that he uh, was able to tell a great story and I really appreciated getting to know a lot more about him today. So have a fantastic week and I really look forward to having you along for future episodes of the Arate podcast. Bye bye.